0: I I think we all know the uh, famous theme that we find running throughout the pages of both the Old Testament and New Testament. And the theme is uh, of prophet, priest, and king. The gospel tells us about these as it tells us about the suffering of Christ. His death revealed to us that Jesus himself was, in fact, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. He is our priest, the mediator of the new covenant. And when we think of a priest, we often think of the fact that they are mediators. They mediate between God and man. They offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But in reality, all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king, are offices that function with that mediating sort of quality. The, the example would be Moses himself. We read of him in the Old Testament, and technically he's not a priest. But the book of Galatians refers to Moses as the mediator of the Old Covenant because it was through the agency of Moses that he brought the law of God to the people of God. So the prophets, the priests, and the kings were all really intermediaries between God and his people. The prophets mediated God's word to the people. They were God's mouthpiece, God's spokesman. First God spoke to the prophet, and then the prophet would go and speak to the people on behalf of God. The priest mediated the people's prayers to God. The priest mediated the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But then you have the kings who mediated God's rule to his people. All governments have been established by God, and we see that in Romans thirteen one. But it was Israel who was first ruled by judges and then by kings at the request of the people. It was understood that the king was God's ruling representative to give God's people God's way to mediate God's rule in the arena of civil life. But the gospel tells us that God ordained the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, as the final mediator, fulfilling all of those offices of prophet, priest, and king. 1 Timothy 2.5 two says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And there is a sense in which we've, we've ever been reminded of that this morning as we come to worship. Because as we come to worship, we also sense the fact that those who minister the gospel, although they don't hold strictly to those offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king, we can actually see the principles behind that as the minister uh, uh, preaches the word of God in worship. Because when we, we read the Word of God publicly, when the Word of God is preached corporately, those prophetic functions are there. They're even there when the pastor gives the opening prayer all the way to the end prayer of the benediction. Those are all priestly functions. They're reserved according to the Westminster Standards for Gospel Ministers, those are ordained to uh and set apart by god to represent in a sense christ to the people those are uh what we find as we read first peter chapter 2 he's speaking of the the suffering of christ our lord and it's interesting that as uh, as a a minister of the gospel i am a, a sense a shepherd or overseer. But I want to make this point because many, many pastors don't get this. I am not the great shepherd. I am an under shepherd of the great shepherd. And so are all of those pastors. Too many think that the flock that is put before them is their flock. I do have a responsibility, as do the other elders of this church, to give an account for every single soul that is in this flock. And we take that seriously. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, of Christ, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. But listen to what it says in verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have, uh, have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Just like the Old Testament prophets, it was this Jesus that we have seen. Like a prophet, he was despised. Like a prophet, he was abused. Like a prophet, he was mocked and rejected. And as we have seen in previous weeks, as a king, Jesus was scornfully lifted up on a Roman cross, which became his throne. And now, as we look through the book of Mark, we come to verses 33 through 39. And there we see Jesus as a priest. And he's just not any sort of priest. He's the one offering the sacrifice, but he's also the sacrifice. As Jesus hangs upon the cross at Golgotha, he is entering the Holy of Holies for us. And we will see that there are many witnesses there Last time we saw Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus' cross. We saw the thieves, one to the right, one to the left. We saw the mockers. And there uh, there are actually more witnesses in the text that we'll see this morning that show us the importance of Calvary. But you see, it wasn't a human being who was the most important witness. It was God himself. It was God himself who came to punish his only begotten son in the place of sinners. That's why the prophet Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. To say this, that when... God comes to Calvary he brings hell with him he punishes his only begotten son and by coming to Calvary and visiting iniquity uh, and visiting iniquity on his son the son brought us to God as our mediator and as our high priest 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, because of his curse, we are given eternal life. And if we... Remember, all the way back when we first started the book of Mark, we see in Mark 1.1, what did it say? It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the first verse of this gospel It's because it's Mark's whole point in writing the gospel to reveal to us what we see in verses 33 through 39 of our text this morning. He has to show us that Jesus is the Son of God and he does that in numerous ways. Through the miracles Jesus performed, through the preaching that we see in the life of Jesus where people are amazed, and they, they know that these are words from God. They know that these are actually words from heaven. But Jesus most reveals his identity, ironically, in his death. Because there he shows that he is the Holy Son of God. And in these verses, I want you to be ready. Because these are the most important verses in all of Mark's gospel. It is these verses that will reveal to you the identity of Jesus Christ. It is in these verses that you will have full assurance of your salvation. It is in these verses that is the difference between heaven and hell. It's in these verses that is the difference between understanding the nature of God and understanding the Trinity and understanding the gospel itself. Because in these verses, Mark provides the greatest evidence of Jesus' identity as Savior of sinners and holy, the Holy Son of God. And so, with that as our introduction, I just now ask if you would turn to our text for this morning. It's found in the gospel of Mark chapter 15. And this morning, as I said, we'll look at verses 33 through 39. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama sabathini, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, they, uh, they said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this Man was the son of God. You know, when the Puritans preached, they often preached on the doctrine of the sinfulness of sin. What a neglected doctrine these days. Hardly a pulpit around will mention sin, death, and hell. Because they're afraid to say that. And yet, without understanding that, what is there? There is no salvation. Salvation from what? That must be preached. It's so neglected. Because to study the nature of sin is actually to familiarize yourself with your own wicked heart. It's to understand that Satan, as well, is the enemy of your soul. And yet, for sin, there was the reason for Christ to die on the cross. That is the darkness associated with Calvary. So, getting right into our exposition here. Verse 33, it says, Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Just like we just read, there was darkness associated with Calvary. It was an eerie darkness, it was a darkness of sin. And here was a time when the sins of the world were heavy upon Christ on the cross and the wrath of the Father was upon him as Christ hung on this bloody cross. He was alone during this time. And this was the most intense agony that he ever had. And it wasn't all of the physical agony. This The, the biggest agony that he had was for the first time in his existence, For the first time in his existence, the face of the Father turned. This was the darkness that veiled that awesome and awful hour. That's because a holy God could not look upon sin. He had to turn his holy face away from his beloved son who hung in agony upon a scandalous cross so that he could be a substitute for sin. The text states that it was dark over the whole earth, not just Jerusalem, not just the Middle East, the whole earth. And that the whole earth felt the judgment of hell that day. There was a darkness. The sun was actually blotted out. And when you think about it, from noon till three would be when the sun would be at its peak. That's when it shines its, its, its brightest. That's the sunniest part of the day. The Ethiopic version renders this passage, and when it was noon, the sun was darkened, and the whole world was darkened until the ninth hour. This darkness was a supernatural darkness. It wasn't just an eclipse. Eclipses just happened for a short short duration. This was seen by other nations all over the world. And I I wanna read uh, John Gill's commentary. John Gill was a 16th century uh, scholar and, and Bible commentator. It's a little difficult and a little bit lengthy, but um, I just want to read this. Gill says, and I quote, this darkness that was over the earth at the time of Christ's sufferings was no doubt in addition to them. The sun, as it were, hiding its face and refusing to afford its comforting light and heat to him, and yet might be a destination Thus detestation of the heinousness of the sin of the Jews were committing, and as expressed about the divine anger and resentment for God's purpose and decrees and the end he had in view did not excuse nor extenuate their wickedness, as it shows also the wretched stupidity not to be awakened and convinced by the amazing darkness with other things attending it which made no impression on them though it did on the roman centurion who concluded christ must be the son of god it was an emblem of the judicial blindness and darkness of the jewish nation and signified that now was the hour and power of darkness or the time of the Prince of Darkness with his principalities and powers to exert himself. End quote. I think it's interesting. It's just as we read in Hebrews in our call to in our scripture reading, it also shows us the wretched stupidity not to be awakened and convinced by this amazing darkness until there is regeneration. Until a person has been born again, made alive, they cannot understand. You can tell them the facts. They can know the facts by heart, but it is the Holy Spirit that converts the soul. And here we see the whole world was in darkness. And where it says the whole earth That word is gay, and it means the abode of men, and it's in opposition to the heavens, which is the abode of God and angels. And it says the whole earth, which that word is halos. That means complete, everything there. But you see, we we get to where we think that this is something, some supernatural trick of God. I've heard people try to explain away uh, the the sea turning red when Moses touched it. They try to go, well, you know, we, uh, history shows that there was this volcanic ash. And uh, Are you kidding me? I've heard people say when Jesus was handing out the bread and the fish that there was someone actually behind him passing it through... Are you kidding me? These people, let me tell you, they claim to be Christians. They claim that they believe that God saved them from their sin. And yet they think that God is an impotent God who has no ability to do things that are way beyond our minds. God made the universe ex nihilo. Out of nothing. He had no chemicals, no atoms, no molecules. He spoke it into existence. And then you want some sort of chicanery from this God who is going to say, well, you know what, I'll do this by little trick of, no, God turned it dark. If he shut the light off that sun, he did so. And he did it completely. And you think about, if he did that, we all know that if the sun was just a little bit farther away or the axis of the earth was a little bit different, we would all freeze to death in a matter of moments. At that same time, he allowed the earth to continue. Folks, this blackness was something that happened and it truly we can see when we look at history even history of the church fathers like Tertullian and origen they said the darkness went well beyond the roman empire everyone was saying what 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 happened what was this this darkness and what we need to see is that at this time of darkness while christ was on the the cross, this was actually the darkness of sin. This was the the kingdom of darkness. Satan is the prince of darkness, and sin is his evil tool to damn the souls of men and to rob God of his glory. If we could only see our sin in this awful darkness. And so often we can't. So often we come into church and what we want to do is we want to we leave just going, man, wasn't that a good message? Pastor just told me how to live. We have Smiling Joe down in Houston who can tell you that. I want you to see the darkness of your sin so that when you walk out of here, you go, Praise God, I've been redeemed by the one who could conquer that. We need to understand and be familiar with the wicked twistedness of our own deceitful hearts. We need to understand that doctrine of sinfulness of sin so that we're able to understand it and flee from it and avoid it. If you believe in a sovereign God, you need to believe that all of this was supernatural. But you know what? Mark wants to show us in this gospel that when it should have been the brightest, it was the darkest. Dark at high noon. In other words, that's exactly opposite of what anyone would expect. But it's a fitting sign for the divine omnipotence as a symbol for those who rejected the light of the world. Just think about this. This paradoxically, God shines light, as it were, on the significance of the death of his son by causing light itself to disappear. And when you study the Old Testament from the biblical angle, you see that darkness is always associated with God's judgment. Darkness is always a sign of God's judgment. And God will speak of darkness of of certain nations. The darkness will come over a nation because of their sin. The stars will fall from the sky or cease to give light. And that is referring to the human rulers of nations who are wicked. For example, Zechariah 1 says the day of the Lord speaks about the Babylonian subjugation of Judah the southern kingdom that had near fulfillment in God's judgment. It speaks about the darkness covering that land, meaning the sin was permeating that land. Isaiah 5.30 says, On that day, if one looks at uh, to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. That's talking about judgment. But Isaiah gives hope to God's people because Isaiah says that in Galilee, in Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. In Isaiah forty two sixteen, it says, I will turn darkness into light. In other words, Isaiah is saying, yes, God is going to judge his people, but ultimately he will spare a remnant. That's all language of judgment and darkness. And some people believe that Amos 8, 9 is actually on Mark's mind as he witnesses what's happening. Amos 8, 9 says, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I think it's also interesting when Peter approaches the, uh, the day of Pentecost and preaches on that day in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel from Joel chapter 2. And there it says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be, shall be saved. You know, Jesus spoke about the darkness that would come in seven A.D. 70 in the Olivet Discourse. We won't take time to look at Mark 13, 24 and 27 again, but, I mean, it, it's the language of darkness that is, is going to be the judgment on Israel. And I think you get the idea that when Jesus came to, to uh, uh, die on the cross, That here, God sent literal darkness as a symbol of his dark judgment that would come upon ethnic Israel. And yeah, perhaps it's also thinking about the darkness at creation. In Genesis 1-2, where it says that God created light. He created that, and it's, it's out of nothing. And it runs in parallel with this new creation, this new covenant, and this new light, the light of Christ. So theologically putting all this together, Jesus hung in literal darkness from 12 to 3. But this is a statement about God, from God, concerning the darkness. Understand that what Mark is doing, he is not giving a divine eulogy mourning the death of Jesus. This is a sign of judgment upon the head of Jesus, the Son of God. This is not the darkness of Satan. This is the darkness of God. This isn't supernatural. This is a natural catastrophe. This is literally supernatural darkness that God sends. And He sends it there upon the cross at Calvary. And there the Son hung alone in the darkness of the cross. His separation from God is not just felt, it's real. But we have to be careful when we. Talk about that separation. Because the ontological unity of the Trinity cannot be broken. If that were the case, the universe would collapse in a moment. Because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, holds all things together by the word of his power. Christ never ceased to be God. But as truly human, truly a man, his human nature had become repugnant, repugnant to God because he was representing the evil of God's people. And so the holy nature of the Father demanded separation from Jesus' human nature. And so we've seen the testimony of nature And darkness but there's a second testimony that we see in verse 34 that the crucifixion of Christ proves that he was the Son of God in a way that his death has universal implication not because of physical pain but because of this spiritual separation from the Father The testimony of the skies in verse 33 moves us. And 34, to the testimony of the Son. And so let's let Christ speak for himself. What does he say? Verse 34, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama, sakbathini," Which means, my God My God, why have you forsaken me? At the ninth hour, Jesus cries. He cries out. And that's when the darkness ended. Obviously, Mark is linking the statement because the darkness itself symbolized the agony of Christ. Psalm 22 is where we see that same thing psalm 22 says my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning oh my god i cry by day but you do not answer and by what does it say by night but i find no rest you see by quoting psalm 22 Jesus is acknowledging the darkness of the sky as being symbolic of his separation from the Father. Mark quotes the Aramaic version, Eloi, Eloi, lama, sabachthani," But then Mark gives the Greek translation, which we see in English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we have to realize that's because his readers are Gentile. But what you see is Jesus who preached the Old Testament was hanging on the cross with scripture on his lips. This isn't a cry of doubt. This is a cry of faith. He knew that he was fulfilling the prophecy of of Psalm 22. I want to make one observation here. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus did not address God as Father because this was the only time that he was ever separated. What's the significance behind this double expression? My God, my God. Well, every time you see that in Scripture, it has significance In Genesis 22, the angel says, Abraham, Abraham. In Exodus 3, God says, Moses, Moses. Second Samuel, David says, Absalom, Absalom. Luke 10 says, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Luke 22, Simon, Simon. Acts 9, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, Saul. Luke 13, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here we see, my God, my God. Jesus knew he was fulfilling the plan that he made with the Father and with the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. Which raises a supremely important question, which we touched a little bit earlier, how could God forsake God? How could God forsake God? The first thing that we should do is eliminate what cannot be. First of all, it doesn't mean there was ever a time the father stopped loving the son you can read that in John 17. The love between the Father and the Son is eternal. So the separation can't mean that. Secondly, it can't mean that the Son rejected the Father, so now the Father is rejecting the Son. So it must be that mean that in some way we don't fully understand, there's a mystery to it, that God the Father abandoned or deserted the Son's human nature because at that moment on the cross his human nature represented sin in fact the greek word for forsaken is the is the word in and and it has the idea to leave helpless to forsake to forsake but not to abandon Notice Jesus' deep distress. He's still calling out to God. He still says, My God, my God. He hasn't abandoned him, and he knows the Father hasn't abandoned the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are words of despair. And they are the only words that Mark records. Mark doesn't give us any call for forgiveness like Luke in Luke 23. He doesn't, concern, he doesn't record concern that Jesus had for his mother as in John 19. Mark doesn't record the offer of salvation to the thief on the cross like Luke 23. Mark doesn't record the final words that he will soon be in paradise. Mark doesn't record the ultimate cry of of achievement. It is finished, as you see in John 19. Instead, the focus of Mark is in the abandonment that Jesus was experienced by experiencing by his father and of course this is a deep mystery this is something that we can't fully wrap our heads around jesus had endured the torture and the mockery and never once cried out until this moment and again i want to hit on this because this is so vitally important This is not separation ontologically between the persons of the Trinity. In other words, things ontological are things relating to or based upon God's being or existence. This is still his God, and he still has faith in the plan of God. Again, the nature of the abandonment is not, listen, this is not an ontological separation of the second person of the Trinity from the first person of the Trinity. But this is the human nature of Jesus lost temporary communion with the Father. That, folks, is the hell that Jesus endured. That is the God-forsakenness that Calvin speaks about where the Father judges the Son and the Son drinks down the cup of the Father's wrath. This is what MacArthur says about this. And I quote, "...that self- separation or abandonment by the Father was not one of nature or essence. The Lord Jesus never ceased to be the second member of the Trinity." Rather, it was a separation of a loving communion he had eternally known with the Father. End quote. Besides the fact that the Father couldn't have separated fully because the Father was present. If you think that God wasn't there at the cross, you're wrong. God is omnipresent everywhere. Some people go, well, God isn't in hell. God is in hell, in his wrath, not in his grace and glory. He is there. It is not Satan's hell. It is God's place of punishment but you will never see His smiling face in hell. You will only see His disdain for the sin. So, just so we understand, there's never been a separation ontologically. But I want you to also realize there were no Angels on Mount Calvary because that represented hell. This is darkness, punishment, separation, and this is what Jesus, as our substitute, suffered. The Father sent no angels to spare him. This is the Son forsaken to his torturers. Jesus came before God on Mount Calvary as a high priest to his people. He's entering the presence of God's wrath and then to the Holy of Holies. But here's the difference. Unlike the high priest... Who carries in the sacrifice? Christ is carrying no sacrifice, no offering. He's bringing himself before the Father, and therefore the Father must punish sin. He must punish him. There's no sacrifice in the hands of Christ, so the Father sends his blazing hell upon his only begotten Son. He was simultaneously a priest and a sacrifice earlier jesus had the comfort in john 16:32 where he told his disciples behold the hour is coming and indeed has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone but then in 16:32 at the end It says, Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. You see, on Mount Calvary, the Father was not with the Son. There was separation. There was abandonment. He was abandoned to his adversaries. He was abandoned to his his torturers. And then in verse 35 of our text we read, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. You see, those heard who heard his screams they didn't have a clue of what he was saying. They thought he was saying something about Elijah. After all, that Eloy, Eloi sounds like Elijah. There have been some prophetic predictions that just before the Messiah would return, Elijah would return. And we see that in Malachi 3, 1 and 4, 5. And so there's this idea that, yes, Elijah will return before the Messiah. But I think here, these people are making a joke out of it. Remember Elijah in Second Kings chapter two, he was taken to heaven without dying. He escaped this earth without death, and more importantly, he was able. He will be able to come a second time as a forerunner. Malachi 4, 6, 4, 5, and six says, "There is, uh, uh, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet." before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so here they're just mocking him. They're going, hey, buddy, you know, uh, you're, you're, they're supposed to be a forerunner. You're, you're supposed to be on first name basis with them, right? With uh, Elijah? Is that why you're calling out to Elijah? well, maybe he'll take you up in a whirlwind to heaven just like he did. This is mockery. But I want you to understand, this is just pure ignorance. Because who was Elijah? In Matthew 11, it says John the Baptist was. Elijah wasn't literally coming back. John the Baptist was like Elijah, who was the forerunner of the the Messiah. And then get this. In verse 36, it says, Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. This cheap wine, this was the wine that was rationed to the soldiers. It was put on a reed. It could have been that same reed that they put in his hand, they beat him with, and then put in his hand as a scepter and that just made it all the more humiliating and they gave that to him to drink they go huh, you know hey hey let's see if elijah takes you down here have a drink john 19:28 says after this jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scriptures might be fulfilled he said i thirst I thirst. And that's when they brought the sour wine. The the word there is oxos. And it's a mixture of uh, wine and vinegar. And that's what the Roman soldiers got to drink. Sounds great, doesn't it? Wine and vinegar. But you see, this was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 69, 21. Where it says, they also gave me gall for my food and my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Continuing with verse 37. It says, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Here I think it would be helpful to turn to John 19 for just a moment. Because Mark just gives an abbreviated depiction there's more to what Jesus said. You know, here in Mark, it just says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. But uh, John 19, 28 uh, through 30. Starting with verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now co- accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So here we see when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Just like Mark, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want you to understand that Jesus is now ready to drink the wine. Because remember at the Last Supper, he said he, he couldn't drink it because he knew that his kingdom had not come but was certain Remember, he told his disciples, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom. And now the kingdom has come because of the work of atonement is finished. He has absorbed the the hell on the cross. He now says it's finished and he drinks the wine. In Luke 23, it tells us that with a loud voice, he also said, Father... Just think about that. My God, my God. God pours out his wrath on the Son and now he goes, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Call Him Father again. And so back in Mark 15, 37, that loud cry was a crowd, a, a cry that the atonement was complete. And when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that tells us that he voluntarily died. We need to understand. Isaiah 53, 12 says, he poured out himself to death. And we see the words of John 10, where it says, I lay down my life for my sheep. No one has taken it from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. No one took the life of Christ. He laid it down. And this is confirmed by him saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus never ceased being God. No one could take his life unless he allowed them to. This is the sovereignty of God, folks. Jesus is not a victim in the sense that he couldn't prevent his dying. He could have easily prevented it, but he chose not to. And with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, it is finished. With all the strength he could muster up in his voice, and he would return to the glory he once had with the Father. Separation no more. The reunion was fully there because the actual fact that this was the beloved Son in whom he was well pleased because he obeyed the Father. All this brings us salvation. And then, what does it say in verse thirty-eight? Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think it's it's very uh, imperative that we understand that there were actually three beautifully covered curtains in the uh, tabernacle. The first one was the gate of the entrance into the tabernacle, just before the bronze altar. The second was at the door. Uh, through which one would gain entrance to the holy place. And the third was before the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. These three curtains were placed strategically in the tabernacle, each of them made of fine twined linen, uh, where there was twisted threads of purple, blue, and scarlet. And even though they were beautiful to the eye, the veil entrance, entrances of the tabernacle were not made to be objects of admiration. The word veil in the Hebrew is is the word peretkath, and it means to separate. That is what these three veils did. They acted as a barrier between God and man, shutting man out and shutting God in. The first curtain was at the gate, the outer court. It was seven feet high, 30 feet wide, and supported by four pillars of bronze. This curtain separated the people from the outer court of the tabernacle. They could only enter it when they brought their sacrifices to the gate as an offering for God upon the bronze altar. The second curtain guarded the door of the holy place. This veil separated the people in the outer court, from the tabernacle of the holy place, only priests were committed are, are permitted to enter into the holy place after they had made proper sacrifice at the altar and washed uh, and washing at the bronze laver. Now, the third curtain divided the inside of the tabernacle into two rooms: the holy place and the holy of holies. The veil separated the priests who were permitted to come into the holy place from the holy of holies, which is the presence of God. Only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies, and and that only once a year on the great day of atonement. He could only enter if he carried with him the blood from the bronze altar to present as an offering to God. That blood was to be placed on the mercy seat as a substitutionary atonement for his sins and the sins of people. Woven into this veil, um, guarding the entrance to the Holy of Holies, was three huge figures, which were the cherubim. And those cherubim were symbolic defenders of God's power and God's holiness. Like the cherubim who guarded the entry to the Garden of Eden, These cherubim uh, guarded the entrance of the Holy of Holies as if to say this far and no farther. Communion in the very presence of God was found in the Holy of Holies. God had told Moses that it was there that he would meet with his people. He would meet with the high priest from above the the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. When God had spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai, the glorious manifestation of the Godhead, the very glory of God, had so vividly stamped upon itself on the face of Moses that when he came down from the mountain, his face shone. It was so bright that the Israelites asked him to cover his face with a veil. They were basically saying, We want this kind of separation to take place. We do not want to encounter the most holy God in all his glory and terror. It's just amazing that these people would do this. But I I think as you look at, at scripture, you see that these people were rebellious. They did not want... God in their presence. In Isaiah 30, verse, starting with verse eight, it says, now go write on a tablet and note it on a scroll that they may for a time to come and forevermore that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of God, who say to the hearers, do not see, and the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. What did they want? Here it says, speak to us smooth things, prophesy to us deceits. Folks, isn't that what you hear in a lot of churches? It's all about what you want to hear. Make us more like the world, then the world will love us. That is not the gospel. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But as it is, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world does not love you. The world hates you. And yet churches are sitting there going, well, we're more like the world than the, they would accept Christ. That's wrong. So he says, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy to us deceit. Tell us whatever. We don't care. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 30, 11. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. They wanted a veil. They wanted a separation. The Israelites said, Moses, just, we want this kind of separation to take place. We don't want to encounter the most holy God in all his glory and all of his terror. None could bear his presence. That was just the simple reflection of God's glory let alone stand in the very presence of his glory. And so Moses wore a veil, separating the glory of God from the sin, sinless people. The separation was significant, by, uh, signified by the veil of Moses, then the veil of the tabernacle, and then finally the veil of the temple. The New Testament tells us another veil of separation. John 1.14, tells us the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christ, who is the very essence and nature of God himself, emptied himself. That means he took on the limitations of humanity without surrendering any of the attributes of his his divinity. Hebrews 10.20 says this, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is, His flesh. This calls the very body of Christ a veil that hid the deity of Christ from the eyes of men. These people that looked upon him, they saw a boy from Nazareth. In Mark six three, they said, "Is this not the carpenter's son?" The prophet Isaiah foresaw in, in Isaiah 52, 14 and 53, 2, that the Messiah would be one of us. None of his glory would be visible. It would be hidden in the veil of his flesh. Even though that glory was hidden during his earthly ministry, we get glimpses of it. By divine revelation, his disciples were at time able to see beyond the veil of his flesh. And behold the fact that Jesus was indeed the Son in, the Son of the living God. In John 1.14 de- declares that the disciples beheld his glory. Glimpses of that glory were manifested to the disciples through the miracles of Jesus. We see this at the wedding in Cana. In John 2.11, it says, This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his Glory and his disciples put their faith in him. You see, the glory of the Son of God came to its peak at the moment that he died on Calvary. And so in Mark 15, 30, 37 and 38, we read about a very interesting event that took place. This veil is torn in two. That, uh, Mark uses that, that Greek word for torn, uh, schizo, And that's a tearing, that's a splitting, a dividing, a separation. And we know that because of the size of it, it couldn't be humans that did it. Remember, it was 70 feet wide, 30 feet tall, 4 inches thick. It was torn by the very power of the Almighty God. Before tearing of the veil, mankind had no direct access to God's presence. It's very simple, yet it's very profound. God tore the barrier, the barrier that he had had for for sinful humanity for more than 1,500 years. God was also sending a message. The message was this You think you're so religious, don't you, Israel? You think that you can earn salvation. How is this for you? I don't need your curtain. I don't need your priests. The old covenant is abolished. The new covenant is now ratified. All temple activity essentially is null and void. And in 40 years, in AD 70, that's exactly what happened because the Romans destroyed the temple. This is all a prelude to the inevitable destruction of the temple. This is highly symbolic of God's establishment of the new covenant and the reality that we cannot earn our salvation, that it is Christ and Christ alone. And folks, that's always what it's been. Those sacrifices, those those doves, those sheep, those goats, everything was pointing to Christ, and some missed it. Some thought that actually was it. They missed it. It is Christ and Christ alone who earned salvation for us. As a matter of fact, if you'd please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, having boldness to enter the holy, the holiest by the blood of of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Jesus' baptism is shown that he is, has unique access to the, God the Father. But at Jesus' death, it shows that he opened the way for his people to have access with the Father. You remember what it said at his baptism. The Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I think this is very interesting. The heavens were torn open. Same word is used there. And the father spoke about Jesus' identity as his beloved son. And here, at Jesus' death, the temple veil is torn open. But here, someone else speaks of Jesus' identity. Verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. A centurion, a Roman captain in charge of a hundred soldiers, carried out the crucifixion. A heathen soldier who oversaw the death of Christ becomes a believer, and he's standing right in front of Jesus Christ as he dies, and he says, truly, this is this man is the Son of God. He didn't repeat what he saw above, nailed above that Jesus is King of the Jews. He saw Jesus totally differently. He saw him as the Son of God. This is the first person in the gospel to confess Jesus as the Son of God. The first person who truly saw him was a soldier. It wasn't a religious leader. It wasn't a political uh, elite person. It was a pagan Gentile. So why did Jesus do this? Why did God the Father permit his son to do this? Well, I think the Apostle Paul answers this. If you please turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9. Starting with verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Folks, all the people in history should have believed, and yet they mocked him. The one guy who should have mocked him believed. He's the guy who stands gazing at Jesus, dead on the cross, and he authentically sees Jesus for who he is and believes in him. Salvation is a miracle of God. This is a picture of God supernaturally granting faith to a hardened, unbelieving sinner. This should be an encouragement to us as we go out and evangelize and as we're part of missions. Anyone can believe if the Holy Spirit opens their eyes just like this Roman soldier. What an amazing God we serve, that he can change the heart of the hardest, most vile sinners. He can save the most unlikely individuals because he is mighty to save. And don't ever think you can know the mind of God in this. Don't sit there and try to pick out who you think might believe or who might might not. You might end up looking at someone and go, well, they're kind and honest and hard worker. Wouldn't they make a good Christian? Maybe, maybe not. But maybe it's that guy who you think will never believe. He just doesn't look like the the church-going type. God help you. How absurd. I'm glad that it's God's way and not ours. I look at my own life. Why would he ever save a person like me? But God saves whoever he wishes, and he does it all for his glory. And it brings him great glory and great pleasure to save people like that centurion. Just look around the room. you'll see a bunch of people who were once hard-hearted and unbelieving sinners. And then God opened their eyes to see the significance of Christ on the cross. God opened our eyes to see who Christ truly is, the Son of God, our Savior, and our treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are really beyond overwhelmed that you would redeem us, that you had us in mind, that you knew our names, that they were written in your book before the foundation of the world, and that Christ died so we might live. He died in our place But we know that one day our grave will open because we are not only died in Christ, we will raise in Him. We know that there is resurrection. We know that this gift of salvation has no parallel. We also know that there is only one gospel One Savior, one sacrifice, one way of salvation. And we thank you and praise you in the name of our most precious and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.